This is undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Matthew. Yes. Did you watch the football game? I did watch that football Which game. Which football game am I talking about? Well, I assume you're talking about the Bengals and the Bills, right? Yes. Yeah. We had it on in the background, and uh, as we do typically, the Sunday night or Monday night games. And I was doing dishes, and I turned around and saw that the players were knelt on the ground, and I thought, oh, we've got another football injury, and really didn't think much of it. And then went back to doing the dishes, and I turned back around 10 minutes later, and I said, wow, they're still kneeling on the ground. And, uh, and, and I called my wife in to come watch it. And we spent, I mean, we were out till midnight watching coverage of that. And, uh, it was wild. Really? Was that the first time you were ever seeing anything like that? No, I have seen, you know, I've seen football games, uh, professional football games where, you know, people have knelt and people have been injured and Mm -hmm. they've brought out the, uh, the straight backboard and, you know, well, Lisa Salters, who's a reporter, sideline reporter for ESPN, she said something in the coverage of it that I thought was really impactful. And she said that a lot of times when those moments happen, you know, unfortunately, it's not that unusual in professional football. But more times than not, what we'll see is the player being carted off and they'll give you the thumbs up. Right. And the thumbs up is is kind of an unspoken way of saying you can Let's keep carry playing. On. You can keep going. It's OK. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be OK. And you didn't get that from DeMar Hamlin. You didn't see the thumbs up. You didn't see much movement at all. And uh, it was scary for not just, I mean, obviously for his colleagues, his coworkers, but it was scary for us as fans, too, to see that and go, wow, that's uh, hard to watch. I didn't. I, I don't watch American yeah. football. Yeah. And when I have students in my class or football players or I try to make jokes in class, uh, so how did we do this week? And <laughs> I have no idea what's uh-huh. going on. And you know, everybody's just like, "Who's this crazy person that's not checked into the yeah. you know the pulse off Northwest Arkansas with the Razorbacks right. and all of that kind of stuff?" But I didn't watch the game the other day, and I was just checking my Twitter and my Instagram, and I just saw. Emmanuel Acho and you know I saw the 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 tweet from you know is it Skip? Oh, Skip Bayless. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and everybody mm-hmm. was reacting to that, and everybody was praying and vigil, and I did. I've never heard about. Well, I don't know a lot of football players. I only know Beast Mode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here because so that I won't get fined, right? You know, right. I, <laughs> so um, you know, I but I really started to pay attention, and and of course, you know, the analysis started coming in about black bodies because the Skip Bayless t- um, Bayless tweet about you know will the NFL you know it's so late in the season will they delay the game and people were wondering was it because it was a black body while and it's you know replaceable it's fungible yeah you know why he it was so flippant yeah and and there were a lot of people uh, you know I follow a lot of people on media twitter who were talking about why is it taking 
so long. Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, why is it taking him so long to just come out and say this game is suspended? And, you know, there was a lot of of people saying that, you know, well, they have to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to replay this game. It was such an important game in the playoff scheme. And, you know, and you also look at it from a, a money perspective. Exactly. Right? There's a lot of people making money on this game. There's gambling happening on this game, fantasy football, you know, actual TV. Right. There's a lot of money invested in, in this happening. And it was a very important game, very highly watched game. So, yeah, it's uh, it's wild to think about how much money went into that and, you know, arguably how much money was lost <laughs> yeah. on that, right? Yeah. So when all of that discussion was going on and I was watching the banter on Twitter and all that, it made me think because when I, you know, I teach my class, I'm teaching a class called Black Freedom this semester. And we talk, I mean, talk about black bodies and, you know, often try to relate it to students. And we often get into conversation about athletes. And, you know, we're up here in Northwest Arkansas and, we have the Razorbacks, who are the life's blood of this uh, community of here. And Power we talk Five about School, Power, Power Five, Five Conference. Yes, yeah. the SEC, and, you know, even though Go Vandy. I mean, they're here to bring up the GPA. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some people got to do that. <laughs> you know, we talk about what the players and the bodies on the field look like versus what the cheering population and the investors and, you know, the people making the money look like, you know, and we've had all this discussion about the NIL and, you know, you've watched the 30 for 30 where all these athletes, their jersey and their likeness were being sold mm-hmm. and they couldn't buy a pizza. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it made me think about William Roden's $40, $40 million slaves. And of course, like clockwork, he was on MSNBC. Mm. the next morning mm-hmm. giving commentary right um so william c roden's um, book 40 million dollar slaves is really about how black athletes navigate how they participate in sports right and he looks at the history of black athletes from the 1700s up through the 2000s a very popular book on campus um lots of students take um or african americans in sports class and that book is taught and you know it's it's really interesting right to really think about athletes being traded yeah right you see a bunch of i think there was this popular meme the other day that it was a bunch of white people sitting around trading black athletes mm. You know, mm-hmm. in perhaps not unlike the ways we think about the slave trade. You yeah. know what I mean? And um, so those are the things that, you know, when these kinds of discussions um, come up, that, um, that that's my entry point into them. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with our special guest. Uh, his research and teaching interests um, is in 20th century African-American and American history, um, sport history. His first book was Outside the Lines, African-Americans and the Integration of the National Football League. And his latest book, which, you know, we can't wait to hear about, is uh, Money, Mavericks, and Men, the AFL, Black Players, and the Evolution of Modern Football. Since then, he's embarked on more recent research that we're looking forward to. He will be the big guest presenter at the Donovan Lecture here at the University of Arkansas at the end of the month, right, January 30th um, in Giffel's Auditorium. So we're looking forward to that. But for in the meantime... We'd like to thank Dr. Charles Ross for coming to the Undisciplined Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity and the wonderful uh, introduction. 
Looking forward to it. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Sir Dr. Ross, who is Dr. Ross outside of the classroom? Were you a football player? Uh, I wouldn't say in the conventional sense. I played one year of high school football my senior year. Uh, my friends convinced me to go out. I, I spent a lot of my time uh, in high school. And then once I kind of got to college, playing a whole lot of pickup basketball. And uh, but that one year of, of high school football really gave me a, uh, a crash course into the sport. You, you feel like a gladiator when you put all of that equipment on, you put that helmet on. You know, it, it's a very physical sport. And a lot of people don't really understand that, uh, you know, they watch the game. But in a lot of ways, practice is extremely difficult because, you know, in practice, you got a coach standing over you with a whistle saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. You guys didn't do this right. And he's yelling and profanity and, and all this other kind of stuff. So it's, um, but it's a, it's the ultimate team game and you have an opportunity to bond with people. Um, you got to work together. Uh, you got to, you know, cross all kind of lines, racial lines, socioeconomic, uh, rich, poor, Individuals that have maybe some shortcomings in terms of being able to run, being able to be strong. You got to figure out ways to work all of that together. And uh, so it's a it's a it's a wonderful sport for people who are sports fans. It's pretty easy to pinpoint like in Major League Baseball, for example, Jackie Robinson was the one who we know of as breaking the color barrier in baseball. Um, But from what I'm what I'm seeing, the NFL did it before Major League Baseball did. Why do we not know that? Why is this history not as well known as it is with someone like Jackie Robinson? Well, it's just switch. I mean, today, right now, if we walked out on the street and we asked about 20 people about what's going on in Major League Baseball, they'd be like, <laughs> what? Ooh, okay. <laughs> Major League Baseball. The, the premier sport in the country right now is pro football. Uh, is Football is the dominant sport from California all the way over to Maine. And it was just the opposite uh, really prior to about the 1960s with television. It's not basketball right now? No, 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 no. I would I would challenge that. What, what's the measure for well, what's when the we look dominant at, sport? When we look at something like Nielsen, for example, when you look at TV ratings. Yes. Oh, ratings. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. The NFL Who's is... Who's getting paid the most? Well, if you look at if you look at the number in terms of the overall perception or overall makeup of the fan, uh, men, women... Class, racial background. If you went out here right now, I can guarantee you, you could ask 20 people about various aspects and facts about pro football. They're going to probably give you some feedback. And football has done arguably the best job of the three major sports in this country with television. They have used it as a tool to elevate it uh, in terms of its publicity, in terms of its exposure, in terms of getting fans to 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 tune in. And so prior to television, baseball was the sport because people in this country went to a baseball game. It was a way, it was a form of entertainment, play opportunity for you to get out of the house after working eight hours and go to a baseball game and enjoy that. You, you had you had teams, people were really, really ingrained and connected with baseball. And football uh, did a meticulous job of really supplanting baseball. Really, really, you can see that process in, uh, taking place in the 1960s with television. 
uh, in 1970s and 1980s. And the Super Bowl will be the most watched event uh, on that Sunday. Uh, and it will probably be one of the most watched television events um, in this country for that entire year. Uh, when you start talking about Nielsen ratings, like Matthew was saying, people plan are going to plan uh, their day. Um, they're planning their weekend. It's a big deal. But why don't we know the names of the folks who integrated football now? I mean, as we've pointed out, football is is undoubtedly the most watched television show, probably the most top three or four rated shows on TV this year will be NFL games. Why don't we know that history as well? Well, I think a lot of it is because of the largeness of Jackie Robinson. He's the Martin Luther King of sports uh, in the in the post World War II period, uh, baseball was the dominating sport, and everybody was focused on: Is he really going to actually be brought up to the Brooklyn Dodgers? And then once he was brought up to the Dodgers, all of the media, everybody all over the country, writing stories, following him. What did he eat? What happened to him? Who said this? What did somebody throw at his head? Did he get a hit? All of these kind of things that played themselves out in terms of all of the articles and, and all of the things that in terms of publicity that were surrounding Jackie Robinson. Uh, and the fact of the matter is he was extremely successful with all of the pressure that he had to deal with. And so no fault of his own, even though uh, he doesn't come to the Brooklyn Dodgers until 1947 and you have four African-Americans playing pro, pro football in 1946, one year earlier, but everybody was looking at Jackie Robinson. Nobody was really, nobody was really that concerned about pro what was going on in pro football. The main focus was whether or not this African American was going to be able to cut the mustard in at the time. What was the dominant sport in America, which was uh, Major League Baseball? So, what was your research question when you wrote that first book? How did you come to that book? And what was the driving question that you had? Well, uh, my advisor, uh, Dr. Warren Van Tine, who uh, just passed away a couple of months ago, um, I was sitting around talking with Dr. Van Tine about, oh, I'm trying to figure out what I want to write about. And, you know, you're going to spend all this time. You got to, it's got to be a topic that you really kind of naturally enjoy. You don't mind doing research on uh and so he asked me the question, uh, which was Matthew was asking me, which is who was the first African-American pro football player? I said, wow, you know, I know Jackie Robinson, but I have no idea. And so I went back and started researching and I found out it was a African-American by the name of Charles Follis, who played in 1904 for a team uh, in Shelby, Ohio, called the Shelby Blues. Uh, and he played for two years, 1904 through 1906. First African-American, and we can document that was actually compensated to play pro football. And then I recognize there's an entire story in which from Follis and through almost all the way through the Washington Redskins, Washington Redskins in 1962 were the last team in the National Football League to formally integrate uh, when they decided to bring on four African-American players. And so there's an entire story. Uh, ups and downs, teams integrating, color barriers being established, individuals that are outstanding in uh, college like Jackie Robinson, not getting an opportunity to play pro football because of a color barrier that was in place temporarily. Um, so there's a real interesting story that hadn't really been synthesized 
Uh, and that was my dissertation. And uh, I just worked on it, spent a lot of time going back and forth, Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, looking at uh, a lot of records. We had an outstanding library at Ohio State, library that was inside the library called the Black Studies Library, had a tremendous number of African-American uh, newspapers from all over the country. Uh, and I just meticulously went through year by year, um, looking at um, these various teams, looking at various players, looking at various events, looking at various themes. And that produced uh, my first book, uh, Outside the Lines. So what kind of arguments did those newspaper sources allow you to make about what you were discovering? They allowed me to fundamentally kind of make the argument that pro football, uh, when it starts as a minor sport, and so ownership and various teams um, allow Black players to participate largely because they're kind of tokens. The sport itself is trying to get stability. And so unlike baseball that has this color barrier, they allow limited participation. Then they uh, have uh, a color barrier once they get to a point to where they become relatively stable. They have the National Football League, which is uh, formally organized 1920 and renamed NFL in 1922. Uh, and then they have a East and West um, conference that is uh, organized in 1933. Uh, they have a championship game. And so now they're making money. They have a certain amount of stability in terms of the franchises. And then after World War II, all of this democracy talk puts pressure on uh, various teams to begin to look at uh, uh, slowly bringing Black players on. And that begins in 1946. Uh, and it takes up until 1962 until each team has an opportunity or is finally integrated. Uh, there's a certain amount of tenacity that Black players have. It is a very, very, very difficult uh, and kind of precarious existence that they have to deal with from, from the time of Follis up until 1962. But nevertheless, they lay the groundwork for this game uh, and, and really this really uh, spilled over into my second book, which is uh, they laid this found work foundation to uh, really propel this sport to the next level in the 1960s and 1970s. How did black players change the game of football upon joining the sport and integrating the teams? It, it's just like baseball in a sense that if you have a whole population of people in this country and you're not allowing them to participate in a particular sport, in a lot of ways, you're shortchanging the fans. You're shortchanging that population in terms of competitiveness. You know, one of the things that somebody told me a long time ago that really stuck with me. Um, when you look at Major League Baseball and you look at the time period prior to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947, you got all of these records set by the New York Yankees. You got Babe Ruth and, and you got the Yankees of 1927 and, and how many games they win and how they just annihilate these teams. And then you have in a backdrop when Major League Baseball teams did in fact play these Negro League teams and these barnstorming and these games that were taking place outside of the schedule. Negro League teams won two-thirds of those games. So 
if you were now to extend opportunities to black players during these 1920s when Babe Ruth was hitting all of these home runs and the Yankees were so dominating, you now brought in another level of talent, a whole group of individuals that had talent that clearly could have been playing at the same level and could have helped teams that were really struggling and maybe now made the Yankees not as dominant, history would have been very, 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 very different. And so ideally, again, one of the things that um, you look at um, when you look at my work is that it's going to make you begin to think about in this early time period, you're only getting a, a small number of African-Americans getting opportunities. And again, um, history can be very, very, very different. And you look at pro football today, we're finally getting to a point to where particularly the field itself, every position is kind of getting evaluated in a way in which if the best person is available, let's get this person an opportunity to play, particularly the quarterback position, uh, because it wasn't that long ago, 15, 20 years ago where it was extremely difficult for African-Americans to play the quarterback position. And now you're getting a little bit different kind of football. You're not a little bit. You're getting a very, very, very different kind of football uh, at the professional level. I know a bunch of quarterbacks, a black quarterback, so that tells you something. Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't know nothing. Uh, probably the best quarterback in the National Football League, Mahomes, is an African-American. Uh, and so Mahomes wouldn't have an opportunity to play 20, 25 years ago, they would have tried to move him to defensive back. Um, and so, you know, now you're getting a pro football in its purest form in terms of every position now. Um, if you got if you got the talent, um, then that opportunity um, is really being extended to you. And it's not and it's not extended in a way in which they're saying, hey, you got to now just stay in the pocket. You got to read defenses. In essence, you can only have a certain amount of intellect. Uh, which was all of these kind of buzzwords, the way in which they Michael described. Vick changed that, right? Right. I mean, so, you know, the, your ability to use your naturally gifted ability to run, move, make quick decisions, throw the ball from outside the pocket, all these things now are positives. And in the past, uh, those things were, were negative, and we have a much, much more exciting uh, type of, of football that's very, very, very competitive. We'll be right back. Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. We'll kind of keep comparing the different leagues here. When we look at contracts, for example, I think this is probably a good place to kind of segue into conversation around DeMar Hamlin, for example. When we look at contracts in professional sports leagues, in Major League Baseball and in the NBA, for the most part, those contracts are guaranteed, right? So if if a player signs for, I'm just going to throw an imaginary number out here, $100 million for 10 years, that player is going to get paid for all 10 of those years. In the NFL, that's not the case. Can you give a little bit of maybe some 
explanation as to why that's not the case in the NFL and kind of explain what the reasoning is for that? <laughs> it's a great question, Matthew. It's pretty simple. The NFL owners are some of the most powerful group of men, and and there's a there's a, a woman also, a couple of women that are part of that ownership group, 32 owners. They develop a system that um, is one of the most economically beneficial systems for ownership in the United States of America. And as long as your labor force is willing to capitulate and go along with that system, then you're going to continue to have that system. The NFL, they typically do not want to extend guaranteed contracts. Deshaun Watson signed a highly unusual a contract that may, in fact, begin to facilitate uh, some fundamental differences in the overall way in which labor and management function. Uh, he signed a fully guaranteed $230 million contract with the Cleveland Browns. That is not ha- That has not happened before. So most NFL contracts, um, NFL players get their money basically on the front end through the signing bonus. Uh, the signing bonus is guaranteed money. Outside of that, you can be cut, released, and then they don't have to pay you the rest of the money. Um, and as you're alluding to, yes, in um, the NBA, in Major League Baseball, in those two sports, uh, those contracts are fully guaranteed. So, um, the, but the argument is, the ideal ideology behind it is that NFL owners feel like, well, what happened with DeMar Hamlin can happen that an NFL player's career can come to an end just off of one play. Anything can happen. Anything can fluky can happen. Injuries are a fundamental part of this sport. We understand it on both sides, labor and and management. And so labor has uh, kind of accepted the fact that um, we can't necessarily have guaranteed contracts because um, injury can happen any minute, any hour, any time, uh, individual takes a field. So you're just gambling with your body out there. Yes, you're gambling with your body. Absolutely. And you understand that this is an opportunity for you to say, for example, leave the University of Arkansas, get drafted, get a signing bonus, um, try to make a team as a high rank draft choice, work your way onto a roster. Um, and then maybe potentially after a couple of years, um, three or four years, maybe five at the max, Sign a big time deal um, so that you can have a certain amount of security, maybe, for the rest of your life and help to provide for your family. Um, and so when you look at individuals um, who are in this uh, profession, they understand the risks. Um, they understand how precarious this is, but they also understand that uh, this is an opportunity to make more money, a generational money. Um, if things work out for me, uh, than if I was someone uh, taking your class, teaching history uh, for 30 years. Uh, and so that's the decision that these individuals are making. Of course, there are a fraction of them are actually living out those kinds of dreams and achieving those kind of goals and objectives. But the fact of the matter is they feel like also the publicity and everything else that comes along with it is worth it. Korea, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but there's a running joke with people who are either former 
NFL athletes or, or follow the sport pretty closely that NFL stands for not for long. Uh, not for long. That's I'm right. Not gonna be here for long. Not for but, long. <laughs> but I'm I'm wondering, you know, the intersection um, as a sports historian and you know the kinds of direct ra- ways that this intersects with race. I'd like you to speak on that, and especially, you know, probably I'd like your opinion on if you think all of this stuff would be are more tolerated because it's black bodies on the line and given the history out of which black bodies are coming from, if this is the foundation upon which we kind of see that kind of a fungibility that we see in the NFL where black bodies are concerned. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that you yourself, you're asking a question because you, you, it's a leading question, your honor. I mean, for the Uh, viewers. And and you know, what's, what's interesting is that let's look at the uh, protests that were facilitated by Colin Kaepernick. There were a lot of comments, a lot of perspectives, the flag and anthem and being disrespectful and so on and so forth. And the president of the United States, in a lot of ways, kind of in the in the way in which he articulated things, uh, for the most part, during his four year terms, very simplistically, very, very, very to the point so that there's no confusion. He, in essence, articulated really he was speaking to the owners when he said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Aren't you paying these guys? These, these guys work for you. They're workers. They're, they, whether they're picking cotton, they're picking tobacco, they're doing sugar cane, or they're playing football. You paid their salaries. Stand up and act like you're the owners of these individuals and get these guys back in line. You know, he didn't talk about the issue that had Colin Kaepernick upset which was racial discrimination in this country, police brutality, absolutely not. He talked about power and where it resided and where it's always kind of resided in this country. And he wanted basically these white owners to act like white owners and and, and stand up. And, and why are you sitting up here in the background apologizing and, and, and around here trying to make statements and trying to get your fan base and people to feel like, hey, they can come to a Dallas Cowboy or Houston Texan or whatever game it is and not feel insulted, you better get your, get your, get your workers in line. And so, in essence, yes, that's, that's where we are because you have a labor population that seems to be inexhaustible. Um, when the individuals landed on the coast of Africa, Uh, One of the things that facilitated the slave trade is that it seemed like there was this inexhaustible supply of Africans, regardless of how many you captured and put in holds of ships and brought them to the Caribbean or North America, you could still continue to keep bringing them more and more. Um, And so it's the same same kind of ideology that uh, these individuals are going to continue to try to go to college, coming out of these uh, communities. They're going to continue to try and follow this dream. And they're also, again, as you insinuate, uh, there's a lot of control that uh, is an underlying uh, component of this. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see as we move forward because the DeMar Hamlin um, incident is going to really put some pressure on the National Football League because the young man – may not be able to play football again 
Um, and so now he's in this position. Does he risk now his total health in trying to come back? Is the team going to be willing to give him an opportunity? Probably not. He hasn't made a lot of money. He hasn't got an opportunity to get to that second contract. Is the NFL going to really take care of him? And so health care has been an overriding issue with the National Football League over the last 10 or 15 years. They've had lawsuits. They've been trying to address it in a kind of politically, publicly meaningful way. Very interesting to see what they do with this young man and how this plays itself out and whether or not the NFL comes up with some way to do something for him in terms of uh, economics. I think when we, it's interesting too, I'm an NBA fan more so than any other sport really. Uh, But what we see in the NBA compared to the NFL is, is the NBA for better or for worse is very much at a player empowerment period, right? Where players have a lot of say, they have a lot of sway over the ownership of who comes and joins their team. People like LeBron James, people like Kevin Durant. Um, these players have a lot of uh, power in their uh, front offices, even though they are just the guys Plus on, they got on a the... they kick-ass um, lawyer for their Absolutely. League. Yeah, yeah. An African-American woman that says she chews people up and, and, and eat them for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and their players' union. Their players' yeah. union is extremely strong. And we don't see that in the NFL. I mean, we have the faces of the NFL, right? We've got people like Patrick Mahomes and, if for better or for worse, Aaron Rodgers. Players like that who, like, you know their faces from TV commercials, but we don't see as much player empowerment. We don't see Patrick Mahomes going up into the front office and saying, hey, you need to give me somebody on the defensive end so that I don't have to score 60 points every game. Right. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the differences in the player empowerment in, in the NFL and and maybe if there is any sort of conversation around, you know, we talked a little bit about how the owners kind of have this cartel, if you will, around whether or not they're guaranteeing contracts, but doesn't the players' union have some power and authority in that conversation too? The players' union has some authority, but the NFL players' union is probably the weakest of the three major sports of in terms of unions. I would argue maybe Major League Baseball players have the strongest union. Historically, they've always done a very good job yeah. in terms of representing their, their their rank and file. And the NBA has done a, an excellent job too. And and maybe the NBA is the best of, of both uh, of all three of the sports because – it's the one professional league where you see a real-life example. Michael Jordan, a player, has been able to make enough money through tremendous endorsements and investments to where he now is an owner himself. And people need to be real clear. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Oprah Winfrey could maybe potentially own some kind of professional franchise or some other African-American that's extremely wealthy. You must have a certain number of votes. you got to have two-thirds of those votes in the National Football League to be able to buy the Denver Broncos for $3 billion. You, you may have $3 billion, but if those owners say, no, we don't think for some reason – that you just don't add up to whatever our standard is, we're not going to let you buy the Denver Broncos. We're not going to vote. All those owners can vote against you. And that happens in the other two leagues as well. And so Michael Jordan has been able to join the ranks of the extremely privileged uh, in this country as as an owner. Um, And that says a lot about where the NBA is. 
I'm just going to be very interesting to see whether or not somebody like Patrick Mahomes or uh, some other outstanding player who's made a lot of money um, in the National Football League, for example, and maybe invested in a way uh, can actually join those ranks and file owner, owners. LeBron James um, has been saying for years that this is something he wants to do. And the NBA um, has, in a lot of ways, recognized his political, astute um, kind of ideology. They've been supportive of that. They haven't tried to shut that down. But I think that's the next step in where we're going in the next 20, 25, 30 years, is that the ownership of these professional franchises must begin to kind of change in terms of that kind of diversity. How long do you think it'll be before we have a black owner in the NFL? Ooh, well, I mean, you tell me. We've had a, you know, first black president of the United States. <laughs> you think about that. You had, you would think it would be easier maybe to be a black owner in the NFL, you know, if you had, you know, because there have been people that have had a lot of money that African-American, so, but no black owner. Um, you've been having struggles just to have African Americans as general managers, and coaches, uh, and, we're, and, and we're getting ready to have some big conversations about head coaches here yeah. in the next couple of weeks or so as these coaches get fired, and African Americans are probably uh, bypassed as we go through that process. So I'm, I think it's going to take—I don't know—I'm not really optimistic. I'd say maybe ten, fifteen years, maybe. Can we talk about that Jerry Jones um, issue that people have been com- commenting on uh, his photograph now coming to light? I don't know. Uh, you know, what What are your views on it, given that he is an owner and perhaps one of the pop America's team, right? Yes. Owners of, owner of America's, yeah. That's that's interesting. It, you know, I'm a Pittsburgh Philly fan, but when you... You know, when I grew up in my neighborhood, you had to work hard. And because of certain kind of accolades and things you were able to do, they gave you a nickname. You don't give yourself your own nickname. They they, they proclaim themselves America's team. But, you know, what's interesting about the whole Jerry Jones scenario, a lot of people, and I can understand the ideology behind it, felt like, well, he was 14 years old at the time. And there's a lot of peer pressure. His family, uh, he's on his uh, team and Everything is going on in North Little Rock where where you've got these kids trying to integrate. And, of course, he's going to show up like his peers because he's trying to fit in. No problem with that component of the story. My problem of the, uh, with in terms of the story was when the Washington Post approached him and said, look, hey, we got this picture. What's your take on it? He didn't come down hard on, you know, what was going on during that time period was wrong. Here he is 80 years old now. He's seen a lot of change in this country. And he understands what he was struggling with. He understands racial, the process, the process of racial integration. He understands segregation. He understands he's uh, he's the owner of, of one of the most popular recognized teams in, in, in this country, in the world. And this was an opportunity for him to kind of address some of these kind of institutional problems that the game has had. You know, I, I haven't had a black coach. At some point, I'd like to maybe have a black coach. You know, maybe I was wrong in the whole Kaepernick 
position that I took when I came down kind of hard on my team and my players and talked about, you know, fans and buying PSLs and, and season tickets and, and not turning them off. I didn't deal with uh, the, the issues of uh, we have in this country in terms of uh, police brutality and, 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 and racial discrimination. So he had another bite at the apple. Uh, and he wasn't 14. He's 80. And so it's, it's, a, it's it, it, it makes you, again, makes him now open to criticism about, well, how much have you changed from the time you, you, you this time that's elapsed since you were in this doorway, standing there with these young people and where you are now in this doorway uh, in Dallas, Texas? Or the kinds of white privilege that he carries and that exists that we have, he was a child, we do agree, at that time, at 14 years old, right? Yes. As somebody, I'm sure, many of his peers, certainly black people who were trying to get in that school, his peers at that time, knew better and were on the the right side of history. I'm sure his other white peers, too, who, against their coach's advice and whatnot, did not go up there or whatever to do the things that Jerry Jones did. But the fact that people like Ruby Bridges and other black children, their whole life has been dis- defined by that one moment in civil rights. And Jerry Jones is 80 now, and this is just coming to life, and he has gone through life unscathed. You know, never having essence be defined by this thing that he's experienced. There is no white leader that was calling him up to, you know, to to talk about this. Whereas Ruby Bridges and other African-American children have lived their whole life with that trauma experience. Beautiful point. I think you're right on point. And again, he could have referenced and articulated he could have gotten buy-in from his players. That yes, would have been the yes. point to like make his players be like 10 toes down for him more. Yes. You know, to be like, you know, that was, a, that could have been his redemption story. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? But I think that he comes from, like you said, you use the words privilege. Uh, and he has a tremendous amount of power. Uh, and he's not going to necessarily apologize. Um, because I think that, you know, the way he, in an interview that I've heard several, you know, his take was he was being disobedient to what the coach said because he was curious. And so and in a lot of ways, that's a part of his DNA and his fiber that he, he thinks outside the box. He does things his own way. He wasn't there to heckle or anything. He was just going to see he's a football player, whatever. So, again, you know, he said, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go down and, and, and make myself have to respond to, you know, some higher questions about integrity, racial integration, discrimination, segregation, privilege, all of these things that are very, very obvious in this country. I'm not going to address those things. That's for the media and everybody else. Um, I'm, I'm above that. Um, I'm above that kind of reproach. I own the Dallas Cowboys. I'm cloaked in that kind of power, and uh, you don't like it, um, tough. Uh, and so that's the way I kind of read uh, a lot of his responses uh, and the way in which he kind of, and some of the things he said actually in the article, and even some of the oral responses he had when people followed up with him. Well, it sounds to me like we're in for a great treat when you come 
to talk about the state of the game, the struggle to integrate the NFL on and off the field on January 30th at 6 p.m. in Giffel's Auditorium because that sounds like an extension of these issues that to integrate, that sharing of power, issues of control. We're in for a great treat when you come on the 30th, and we're looking forward to it. Uh, this was a pleasure and a treat, I know, certainly for Matthew um, and for myself as well. Uh, we certainly enjoyed this. So thank you so much for coming to the Undisciplined Podcast, and we can't wait to hear you in the on the Donovan Lecture on the 30th. Appreciate the opportunity. Enjoyed it. And uh, thanks so much, Matthew and Karee. Uh, it was really enjoyable. Uh, and... Uh, Look forward to hearing uh, our, part, our podcast. I'm going to uh, send it out to our students and let everybody uh, give me some criticism and feedback about it. Maybe I messed up. <laughs> Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app.